come now to the reading of God's words this evening. Our uh, scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the whole chapter, just 13 verses on church discipline. Uh, preached this afternoon in Dunville and was asked to, uh, to preach Lord's Day 31, and so we'll preach that again. I apologize for this being a bit out of order with where you are in the catechism, but uh, trust nonetheless that uh, God will add his blessing to his word, as this is something that it's good to be reminded of. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging also those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Then we will read that in connection with Lord's Day 31. It's on page 886. In 887, the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal, uh, questions 83 through 85 on the keys of the kingdom, uh, giving special attention to Christian discipline. Lord's Day 31, it asks, what are the keys of the kingdom? The answer is the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Question 84, how does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven according to the command of Christ? 
The kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, truly forgives all their sins. The kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites that as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. And finally, how is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? According to the command of Christ, those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or, un- or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them. And God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. Congregation, the Reformed churches have always believed that church discipline is one of the marks of the church. And yet even in Reformed churches, you will hear objections to it. Um, You'll hear people say that, that it's mean, and so we shouldn't do it. You'll hear people say that it won't lead to repentance, but rather we we just need to be patient. Or that it will tarnish the the church's reputation in the community, or that it's uh, somehow contrary to the spirit of the gospel as one of grace. These are the kinds of objections that you hear. Uh, Perhaps you even voice them yourself. Or maybe you've had an experience with a loved one disciplined by the church and it's left you feeling angry, hurt. And you think to yourself, how could something so mean possibly be done in the name of Christ? And so we assume it couldn't. But that the church has been wrong for all these years. That discipline is not a mark of the church, but a relic of a bygone era where mean clergy and mean elders held people to account. But we have moved beyond that to a much more tolerant, much more sophisticated, much more gracious way of living. This was not far from the logic of the church in Corinth. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, shows uh, why they were not only wrong in thinking this way, but why discipline is, in fact, gracious. So we need to heed the words of the Apostle Paul this evening in order that we might understand the reasons why our hearts often cringe at the thought of discipline, but then to go beyond that and see why we should, in fact, be doing it and what it looks like in practice. So I invite you to first look with me at uh, why we don't do it. We see this in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, at least one of the reasons. And before we uh, dive into that reason, I think it's helpful to understand the situation that's uh, going on in Corinth. Apparently one of their members is uh, in a relationship with his father's wife. Likely this is a stepmother, as uh, Paul uses the language of 
Leviticus 18, verse 8 here, where your father's wife, in Leviticus 18, is distinguished from your mother in Leviticus 18, 7, the verse just before that. And so Paul seems to be picking up on this language, indicating that it's not this man's mother, but his father's wife. In the days in which Paul is writing, stepmothers were sometimes closer in age to a man's children than to a man himself. So I was uh, thinking about this, I was reminded of one uh, theologian in the 1700s who, um, after his wife's death, remarried at the age of, of 69 to uh, a 24-year-old, certainly younger than his children would have been. Uh, something like that may be the case here. A father who has remarried and whose son becomes involved with the woman. And the tense of the word has... At the end of uh, verse 1, it says that a man has his father's wife. It seems to indicate that this relationship is ongoing. Here we have a man involved in gross immorality, not even named among the Gentiles, and continuing in this sin, this man is a member in good standing at the first Christian church of Corinth. And we see in verse 2 that the Corinthians are puffed up because of it. This is one of the reasons why the church does not practice discipline, because of, of what one writer calls the arrogance of tolerance. The idea that to allow such sin is actually something we should be proud of, because it reveals a tolerant, broad-mindedness that truly understands Christian liberty. Rather than mourning in response to the sin, they are puffed up. Verse 6 says they glory in it. They're like a 21st century church with a big rainbow sign in front that says, All welcome here. That is to say, we glory in, rather than grieve, that which God hates. The misuse and abuse of sexuality that is supposed to be a representation of Christ's union with his bride. That's what churches in our day are saying as they glory in their tolerant, broad-minded approach to same-sex marriage or transgenderism or premarital sex and unbiblical divorce and remarriage. What they're doing is no different than a Corinthian Christian congratulating a man for his incestuous relationship with his stepmom. And yet they glory in it. Thinking it's somehow more consistent with the love of God than the church's practice for 2,000 years. I think another reason why many churches take this sort of approach, even Reformed and Evangelical churches, is because ultimately we believe that a, a passive approach is more conducive to repentance. Because we don't really believe verse 5 of our passage, that the discipline Paul is about to commend is unto salvation. That the discipline our catechism speaks of is toward Repentance. It opens the kingdom of heaven. We don't do discipline because of the arrogance of tolerance. We think that looking the other way is somehow more gospel-centered than rebuking sin. We think rebuking sin doesn't really do anything. We don't really believe that church discipline, as the canons of Dort say in the fourth head of doctrine, is a means of regeneration, a means that God uses to save sinners. 
And our denial of that, our denial of verse 5, that this discipline Paul is commending is unto restoration and salvation. Along with our arrogant celebration of tolerance, these are, are the reasons why many churches don't do church discipline. That's why the church in Corinth didn't. That's why many churches today don't. It's why even among us there is a sneaking suspicion that we would be better off just being patient with those wayward members than actually calling them to account. But Paul here seems to think differently. He gives us three reasons uh, why we should, in fact, do the hard work of church discipline. Three reasons that we see in verses 1 to 8, which are also outlined in our church order, in the articles on church discipline, and then in the back uh, on the um, uh, principles for reformed church government that we find in the back of our church order, uh, where it names these same reasons that we find in 1 Corinthians 5, that church discipline glorifies God restores sinners and maintains the purity of the church. So first, the glory of God, which we see in verse 1, where Paul is concerned for God's glory in uh, regard to the reputation of the church. The unfavorable comparison that we see there between the church and and the Gentiles, or the pagans, as the ESV has it in verse 1, underlines the seriousness of this sin. For it is recognizable as such even by those outside the church. And by allowing such blatant disregard for not only the law of God, but also the laws of nature, they dishonor God's name. Calvin says, in making mention of the Gentiles, Paul means to heighten the aggravation of the crime. Portraying this man and the church who celebrates him as worse than unbelievers to whom they are supposed to be a light. Failing to exercise church discipline causes the church to lose its light, causes the church to lose its saltiness, bringing shame upon herself, bringing shame upon God's name. While conversely... Exercising the keys of the kingdom when, when God's name is at stake protects his reputation and that of the church. So it's ironic because many think that we shouldn't do discipline because that will kill our reputation in the community. What will people think when, when they hear that we're, we actually put a person outside of the church? They'll think that we're intolerant and, and judgmental and mean. But actually, what Paul is suggesting is that not doing so has far greater consequences for the reputation of the church. I was thinking of an example where I was speaking with a man, not a Christian, who was lamenting to me this great injustice that had been done to him, and then explained that it was a member of a neighboring church who had done it. Church I was familiar with, it had uh, failed to discipline a member who should have been long before, but had erred on the side of being nice and, and not developing a mean reputation, but had in fact tarnished reputation by allowing a young man to remain in good standing whose escapades were well known in the community. Failing to discipline ungodly members dishonors God and limits the church's witness while exercising discipline, removes offense from the church of Christ. The second thing we see is how discipline restores the sinner. 
It's the second reason given for why we should do discipline. Verse 5 says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. As we see two things in that statement. One, we see the, the pronouncement of this man as outside the church will be used by God for the destruction of the flesh. That is, the sinful fleshly behavior will be destroyed, God willing, as he is put outside the nurture of the church and given over to Satan. Removed from the kingdom of Christ and left to say that he might see the folly of his ways and repent. The giving over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh is, is a reference to the same thing that question 5 is getting at when it speaks of the kingdom of heaven being closed to those whose unchristian lives and unchristian, or who profess uh, unchristian teachings and live unchristian lives. They'll be excluded from the Christian community, cast outside into the kingdom of Satan, till they demonstrate genuine reform and are received again as members of Christ and of his church. And so the goal of their being put outside is that their evil or fleshly desires might be destroyed. And then second, that... Uh, their spirit would be saved. It says at the end of verse 5, in order that his spirit might be saved the day of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Paul's ultimate aim in excluding this man is his good and salvation. Uh, The church's aim in excluding an unrepentant sinner is their restoration. We're not doing them any favors by uh, leaving them to think in their sin that all is well with their soul. But we are aiding them and helping them by drawing that line in the sand and making known to them that they are outside the kingdom. All is not well and they need to turn to Christ in repentance. So that's the second reason why Paul says we ought to do church discipline. And then the third is for the purity of of the church. We see that in verses 6 to 8. It's even uh, suggested in the New King James, which uh, gives a little uh, superscription for this section. Immorality defiles the church. It's getting at this idea that the purity of the church is uh, being undermined, that the church is in some way being defiled. We see that where it speaks in verses 6 to 8 of a little bit of leaven, leavening the whole lump. The um, influence of this unrepentant man has had and will have on the church. Um, Just as leaven invisibly and imperceptibly spreads throughout the whole loaf, the loaf that in 1 Corinthians 10 is identified as the church, so the sin of this one member has far-reaching consequences. I would venture to say churches have have, um, seen this play out in the last couple of years as uh, bitter members cause others to be bitter. Or the church has seen this with sexually licentious young people who, even in the church, influence their peers. And when the church looks the other way, failing to deal with one, the others say to themselves, well, I guess it must not be that big of a deal. And so for the love of the sinner, for the love of the Gentiles around them, the the, the love of Jesus and glory of his name, and the love of the other members of the church in Corinth who might be influenced by this man's sin, Paul says, put the man out. 
You see, it is love that motivates all of this. Which means that it's unloving for the church to let unrepentant sin go unchecked. But God calls the leaders of his church to purge out the old leaven, verse 7, that we may be a new lump, truly unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. Paul's there alluding to Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover feast with the unleavened bread that was eaten and the custom from Exodus 12, 15 of removing all the leaven from your house after the sacrifice. The Passover lamb who is Christ has been sacrificed. And he's saying, remove all the leaven from your house as you celebrate his sacrifice with gratitude. And so Paul is bringing this whole conversation back to the gospel, to Christ, the the Passover lamb who stands in our place and absorbs the wrath of God for us. It is saying, in view of his sacrifice... In view of his sacrifice, just as the Israelites would remove the leaven from their house after the Passover lamb was sacrificed, so the new Israel, the church, must remove all metaphorical leaven from the house of the church as you celebrate Christ's sacrifice with gratitude. One theologian, James Hamilton, points out how this implies the exclusion of unrepentant sinners from the supper. Remember how the Passover is, is taken up in the supper. That's why in Matthew 26 and, and the other uh, gospel accounts, the gospel writers make such a point to, to show us that Christ, in instituting the Lord's Supper, was also celebrating the Passover with his disciples. The one is taken up in the other, even exalted in the other. And so the Passover is, is, is taken up in the Lord's Supper, which fulfills it, making it likely then that the feast to be kept in verse 8 is the Lord's Supper. Paul says, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That feast is likely the Lord's Supper. In both verse 8 and verse 11, there is an emphasis on not eating with or feasting with the unrepentant. But letting this meal be partaken of with sincerity and truth. And so you see how this relates to Lord's Day 30, the the section just before where we are uh, tonight in the Catechism on who may come to Christ's table. Lord's Day 30. Summarizing the teaching of Scripture says, Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin, who trust in Christ for pardon, and who desire to lead a godly life. But those who do not desire to do so, those who do not trust in Christ and and desire to live a life of gratitude for what he's done, are to have the sacraments withheld from them, as it says in question answer 85. That's the first step of the disciplinary process that is necessary for the restoration of the sinner, the purity of the church, and the glory of God. And then in verses 9 to 13, uh, along with verses 3 to 5 of our passage, Paul outlines then uh, what this might look like. First of all, we see in verses 3 to 5 that it's to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus when they are gathered together, that this is to be done in the context of the gathered church. Christ makes the same point in Matthew chapter 18. And it's to be done in the name and the power of the Lord Jesus. 
This reminds us of Matthew 18, that when two or three witnesses gather in Christ's name for the purpose of church discipline, Christ says, there I am with them. And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And Christ's reference to um, two or or three is not speaking of uh, two or three people at at home in front of a live stream as as somehow being a public worship service, but he's speaking, uh, or he's he's picking up on the Old Testament requirement of two or three witnesses in judicial proceedings for pronouncement to be made. We see that over and over in the Mosaic Law, that there must be two or three witnesses for a judicial pronouncement to be made. Christ, in Matthew 18, is alluding back to that and is encouraging his church, when you make such pronouncements in my name for the love of the sinner and the love of the church and the love of the world, I know that it won't be easy, but I will be with you. And Paul gives that same encouragement. He says, my spirit will be with you. And not because he's arguing for some sort of uh, disembodied presence where even though they are miles apart, they're, they're somehow together. But Paul is speaking as an apostolic messenger of Christ whose spirit, the, the spirit of Christ, has led him to the judgment of verse 3. And he's saying, when you read this in the public assembly, when you read this chapter of this letter that I'm writing you, When you read that this man is to be put out and you give your stamp of of approval and you agree with what I say and it's not received well. And the people call you a legalist. And they say that you're not loving. I want you to know that my apostolic authority is backing it. And so in the gathering of the assembly, there is to be a pronouncement, which includes verses 9 to 11, that this sexually immoral person is no longer to be considered a brother. You are not to keep company with him, nor, verse 11, are you to eat with him. Again, a reference to the Lord's Supper from which he is barred. That's not something you're to enjoy with him, giving the impression that all is well and good. Paul is saying, I want it to be clear to to you and to him that he is outside the faith and not a brother. Yes, you may evangelize him. Yes, you may pray for him, but he's not a brother. And your interaction with him should bear that in mind. Charles Hodge, the old Princeton theologian, gives a helpful qualification here. He says, this is not a command to deny all social interaction with the excommunicated, but the command is that we in no way openly recognize wicked men as brothers. And that we not keep company with them, verse 9, which is a reference to church communion, membership among the faithful. The church's pronouncement bars him from the sacraments and excludes him from the Christian community and kingdom of Christ. And then after giving that uh, brief qualification, or this uh, brief qualification of verses 10 to 12, where, where Paul makes clear that he is only referring to those who once belonged to the church, that he's not speaking about our interactions with the unbelieving world, but the sexually immoral and covetous and idolaters and revilers and drunkards who once called themselves brothers. After giving that qualification, he says in verse 13 that God will judge the world, but you are to make judgments about those who are inside the church. Therefore, put away the evil person from among you. You might have, as uh, I do in my Bible, a footnote there that indicates that line, put away the evil person from among you, is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. 
fact, you may notice a footnote that includes uh, several verses from Deuteronomy. Uh, those words appear in uh, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, twice in Deuteronomy 22, and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Five times the book of Deuteronomy within the span of eight chapters refers to expelling someone from the community of the faithful in the Old Testament. And Paul is here picking up that language from those five references. And interestingly, those five occurrences correspond to the list of of sins that Paul gives in verse 11. The five different passages that are quoted in Deuteronomy are with reference to those same sins of which God said, put away the evil person from among you. And yet what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, this actually meant to put them to death. Putting away the evil from among you meant stoning. But now as Paul quotes this in the New Testament, the implication is that they would be excommunicated. Because the nature of church authority in the New Testament is different from from that in in the Old, where the church and state were one. Uh, Then the church was a nation state, and so the nature of her censure included civil punishment up to and including death. But the church is no longer a nation state since Pentecost, and so she no longer wields the sword in such a manner. There is a difference in the way the, the church and state relate now from the Old Testament. This gets into all sorts of other discussions uh, about the way that we understand Old Testament civil laws and and those who would argue that the Old Testament civil laws are supposed to be a a blueprint for modern society. But that's not what we see here. Um, Rather than commanding the civil authorities to inflict the death penalty, Paul calls on the church to exercise the keys. He understands that the general principle remains, but the application of it has changed, as the church's authority is of a spiritual nature. And the spiritual reality signified in excommunication is the same as that of execution in the Old Testament. Just as the execution of the idolater or adulterer or drunkard in the Old Testament was an intrusion of God's final judgment into the present, so the excommunication that the church pronounces is an intrusion of God's final judgment into the present age. Just as the execution was a little preview of eternal death, So excommunication is a preview of standing before the judge on the last day. One Reformed theologian calls it an eschatological sign of the last judgment in the present. Excommunication now, like execution in the Old Testament, is the age to come breaking into the present. Then, in the Old Testament, it did so magisterially, that is, through the magistrate, who with the church was one. Now it does so ministerially, through the church, who ministers the keys of the kingdom and declares in the name of the Lord Jesus, when gathered together with his spirit, that the kingdom of glory is closed to unbelievers and hypocrites as long as they do not repent. The wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest upon them. That's what the church is declaring. It's a gracious thing to do so. It's a gracious thing to make that declaration because the verdict that is being declared is not yet final. 
It is a warning that if you do not repent, then the same verdict being pronounced now will be pronounced on the day of judgment. And so for the glory of God and and the purity of the church, for the sake of a watching world and for the salvation of the unrepentant sin of the church is duty-bound, according to Christ's command, to close the kingdom of heaven to unbelievers by Christian discipline toward repentance. To warn them in the present of what is coming on the final day if they continue on a path of destruction. And not to give this warning because of the arrogance of tolerance is not only disobedient, proud, and a manifestation of disbelief in the means that God uses, but is also cruel in that it fails to warn the sinner of the judgment to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Nothing can be crueler than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke which calls a brother back from the path of sin. Nothing can be crueler than the tenderness which consigns another to his sin, and nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke which calls a brother back from the path of sin. The leaders of this church give themselves to that severe rebuke, and may we pray that those who hear it would heed it. And may we respond if and when that rebuke is directed toward us by looking to the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who was provided as a substitute to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. If it's true that the pronouncement of excommunication is an intrusion of the final judgment into the present, a a little foretaste and preview of the wrath and judgment of God, then what we must do as that warning is given to us or as that pronouncement is made of you is look to the Passover lamb who was slain. Look to the one who bore the wrath of God for you. When looking to him by faith and repentance, may we then join the feast, not with the the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray.